final person I chatted with for this program was oncology nurse practitioner and lung cancer specialist, Ms. Beth Eby, who began by commenting on the usual condition of patients who are being evaluated for consideration of adjuvant therapy. Usually they're pretty well recovered from the surgery by the time they see us. We usually see them somewhere between three to six weeks postoperatively. And sometimes patients are still on a Percocet here or there or having some chest soreness, but for the most part, they've recovered from their surgical symptoms and they're feeling pretty good. They've been told about their diagnosis by the surgeon usually, and it's usually pretty accurate. And I would say about 80% of the time, they know that they're there to discuss adjuvant chemotherapy. How do you explain to them what adjuvant therapy is? You know, we interviewed four patients who received adjuvant therapy for this program, and one of the things that struck me as I listened to them was that each one of them talked about being told by the surgeon that, quote, they got it all, and, quote, they were cured, and yet they're coming in to be considered for chemotherapy, and those two things seem a little bit different. How do you explain to patients what's going on? I hear the quote-unquote, I got it all, almost with every patient. And I don't want to downplay that because I think it's important for their emotional status to say, yeah, they did, you know. Your surgery was very successful, and you had the single best treatment for this stage of disease, which is surgery. But I tell them in as upbeat of a way as I can that, you know, and all of it depends on their stage, but many times this has a better chance of coming back than not. And then they say, well, why would that be? And I tell them, well, because a lot of times some of the cells have, sometimes I'll say, got out of the barn or they migrated out from that original tumor and they could be circulating in the bloodstream or the lymphatic system and we just can't see them right now on any kind of scan. And I guess the other thing that's kind of difficult, and it's not just lung cancer because it's the exact same situation in breast cancer and colon cancer, that we can only make sort of educated guesses about what the chance is that the cancer really still is there and is going to grow and get to be a problem. We can't tell for sure in any individual patient whether or not it's going to come back. Is that your take on it? Yeah, I mean, I tell patients that they might be cured sitting in front of me without taking any treatment, and they might get the treatment, and they could not be cured, and even though they got the treatment, it may not work. And we, unfortunately, at this time, don't have a good way to predict who that's going to be, and that's a large problem. We've talked to a lot of patients about that, and I think the idea of the fact that there's some kind of calculated risk, and if the tumor's bigger, the risk is higher, if the nodes are there, it's higher, but there's some kind of number, it might be 20 30%, or it might be, as you say, a situation greater than 50%, that it might come back, and that the idea that that number, that risk, can be reduced somewhat, not made go away, but reduced somewhat with so-called adjuvant therapy. Right. I mean, we discuss that, and a lot of patients will say to me, oh, so this chemotherapy is like a life insurance policy or something. And I say, well, it is, but it's reducing the risk. I always feel that I have to tell them, I can't say that taking this treatment is going to for sure make this not come back because our treatments, unfortunately, aren't that good yet. I guess the one thing, though, that is important is to consider that the purpose of adjuvant therapy is to increase the chance of cure. Absolutely. And Are you able to sit down with any individual patient and, if they want, give them numbers on what their risk is of it coming back with and without treatment? Yes. What would be an example of a situation, let's say someone who has a smaller tumor relatively and the nodes are negative, of that coming back with or without treatment? 
So if it was a stage one, and we would break that down stage 1A or stage 1B, if the patient has a stage 1A, we actually don't offer them adjuvant chemotherapy because there's been no proven benefit for that. So I tell them that they probably have greater than 80% chance that they're cured from the surgery alone and that adding chemotherapy is really not going to benefit them. Now you talked about stage. What is stage? In lung cancer, we base the stage on if you had lymph nodes that were positive and where the lymph nodes were and the size of the tumor. So stage 1A would mean that you had no lymph nodes positive and your tumor was less than three centimeters. What would be a typical situation where you might offer or recommend adjuvant chemotherapy? Well, certainly for a patient who had any lymph nodes that were positive. So a patient who had lymph nodes either in the center of their chest, which would make them a stage three, or local lymph nodes that were closer to the tumor, which we would call hyalur lymph nodes, that would make them usually a stage two. And then the size of the tumor now we know matters more. And even if there were no lymph nodes positive, but the tumor was greater than four centimeters, we would still tend to offer them chemotherapy because we feel there's a benefit there. And what are the kinds of chemotherapy that are generally utilized in this situation? We tend to base the chemotherapy with cisplatin. As long as the patient is a candidate for cisplatin, it does have a lot of toxicity associated with it. So if there's no other reason that we can't use it, then we would use cisplatin. The drug that we combine with cisplatin, now there tends to be a lot of reasons why we choose certain drugs. We used to use a lot of docetaxel. Now with some more recent data, if there is an adenocarcinoma patient, we may lean towards pemetrexid. If there's some kind of reason we can't use one of those two drugs, we may consider venerelbine or gemcitabine, just again, depending on what the patient's symptoms are, risk factors. So usually they're going to get two types of chemotherapy. You mentioned the cisplatinum and then one of the other four. And then there's another type of drug that's similar to cisplatin called carboplatin that's sometimes used. What's the difference? So carboplatin is, we usually say like a sister drug of cisplatin. It is a platinum-based chemotherapy and basically is the cornerstone of all lung cancer treatments in the first line or in the adjuvant setting. We would use carboplatin if the patient had an adversity to cisplatin. We feel that there is a slight survival advantage by using cisplatin. And when we're going for something in the curative setting, we want to use whatever has the best advantage. However, cisplatin has more renal toxicity, kidney toxicity, neuropathy, such as numbness and tingling or hearing issues. So if patients come to us with those symptoms already having them, then we would lean towards giving them carboplatin. Let's start out thinking about a patient who's going to get cisplatin and docetaxel, which is what you said you had been using quite a bit. For that patient, what are some of the things that you would go through prior to them starting on treatment in terms of what to expect and when to notify you? So I do actually have a sheet made up for that regimen that I made myself because there's so much to go over, starting from everything from hair loss to lowering of blood counts. Can you kind of go through each one of those things and what you say about it? Sure. So sometimes I do just start from head to toe just to try to categorize it all. And again, that hair loss issue tends to be a big one for people. So I do tend to tell them that up front and say, this does make you lose your hair, but it will grow back. And it's all your hair on your head usually, so that tends to happen at two to three weeks after the first treatment, so it doesn't happen right away. Just your head or the whole body? Usually just your head. Men don't have to shave, but they don't necessarily lose their mustache either. They usually don't lose their eyelashes or eyebrows or body hair in general. Usually it's just the hair on the head. 
but their hair doesn't grow. So, you know, you don't have to shave anything. When you consider that the patient, even though generally or a lot of times people use cisplatinum, they could be getting carboplatin, and then you have the four other sort of sister drugs. So there are a lot of different combinations. Do all of these cause hair loss? No. So docetaxel would actually be the only one that causes hair loss in all of those drugs. So if that's an issue, we certainly can switch to something else. What are some of the other things that you counsel people about? So certainly lowering of blood counts. And it's both drugs. And usually with all of them, it's both drugs. So I don't necessarily say, well, one more than the other. And then we go right into white blood cells, hemoglobin, and platelets. Can you go through those? Mm -hmm. So I start with the white blood cells. And I tell patients, honestly, that's the most important because that's the one that fights off infection. So this is the one I'm most concerned about. And we routinely use growth factor support in our docetaxel cisplatin patients. What are growth factors? So that would be an injection that you would get the following day that helps keep your white blood cell count up between treatments. So you have to come back to the oncology office? Right. For us, we bring you back. I know some people have trialed it doing it same day, but we don't feel comfortable doing that. So we do bring patients back somewhere between two and four days later. For one injection or more than one? One injection. Intravenous or non-intravenous? Not intravenous. It's a subcutaneous injection into the arm. So this is to try to prevent the blood count from going down, the white count? Correct, right. And we feel that's pretty important. So, Do all patients get these or just certain ones? If you're getting docetaxel on cisplatin, we give it to everyone. And is the blood count down the entire time that they're on chemotherapy or only some part of it? No, it's usually only some part of it. So we usually tell patients between about day 7 and day 12 with it peaking right around day 10. We use the term nadir, which is that time frame when their blood counts get low. How often do they receive the chemotherapy? With this regimen, it's once every three weeks. And how many doses or how many times? Four times. How about the other ones in terms of schedule? If it's going to be the pemetrexid, it's also once every three weeks. For the gemcitabine or the venerelbine, it would be usually two weeks on, one week off. So there's an issue about whether or not their white blood cell count goes down. What are some of the complications that can be seen if the white blood cell count does go down? So, and one of the frightening things about it is I tell patients, you don't actually know your white blood cell counts down a lot of the times because the people think, oh, if my counts are down, I'm going to feel really, really tired and fatigued. It's actually not true. Usually people have the tiredness and fatigue right after the chemo. And then by day 10, they might be feeling better, which is actually the time that your counts may drop. So the most concerning thing, of course, would be a fever. So if they develop a fever during that time and their white blood cell count is low, we consider that an emergency and they need to be admitted to the hospital for workup of that because your body's basically not able to fight off the infection. When the patients do develop infections, what kinds of infections and where? Because they've recently had surgery on their lungs, in my patients, it many times can be a pneumonia or even a bronchitis with an upper respiratory infection. It can be a urinary tract infection. Often, we don't necessarily find the source. It can just be an infection that sort of migrates into their bloodstream and causes them to be very, very sick. So that's the white blood cell count. What about the platelet count? So the platelet count would be affecting your ability to clot or to stop bleeding. We tell patients if you're having bleeding like spontaneous nosebleeds, blood in your urine or stool, or even just if you're brushing your teeth and you have bleeding in your gums that just won't stop, those kinds of things are things that we would be concerned with, or excessive bruising. 
Now, what about the red blood cells to make the patient become anemic? Right. So the red blood cells, and in particular, we look at the hemoglobin and the hematocrit. The hemoglobin is probably the one we look at the most closely. And we do tend to sometimes have problems with this, usually not too bad, again, with adjuvant treatment, because there's not a disease process going on at the same time that could be contributing to it. And patients often feel tired, sometimes even short of breath, when their hemoglobin drops. Okay, so we've talked about uh, blood count going down and hair loss. What else? What a lot of people are concerned about and have heard about is nausea and vomiting. Right. So that would probably be next on my list to talk about. And this is where I usually call out cisplatin as being the culprit. Cisplatin is one of the most, if not the most, invoking of nausea vomiting drug that we use. And we use a lot of medications preventatively to try to stop that from happening. We use a prepotent, which is a preventative medication that you take for three days in a row, orally. We use a 5-HT3 inhibitor. Our drug of choice is Undansetron, which is Zofran. And we give that to them IV the day they get treatment, and we also give them a prescription to have at home orally. There is another medication called Aloxy or Palinocetron, which can be given IV and is supposed to cover you for a longer period of time. We actually don't have that on formulary at our outpatient cancer center, so we don't use it. We also give a steroid, dexamethasone. So with that three-drug regimen, I would say most people don't have vomiting. Probably about 10 to 20% of patients still do experience some form of vomiting. The control on nausea is much more difficult because it's such a subjective thing. And I actually have studied this sort of in depth. We did a study where we looked at patients and we asked them to describe the word nausea. And we came up with everything from queasiness to unsettled stomach to not a good appetite. What's the time sequence of when this starts and ends? Usually, so if they're on cisplatin, patients usually start to develop the nausea or vomiting two days after treatment. Versus if you're on the carboplatin, patients tend to develop it the next day. So cisplatin just has this different way of affecting patients where they usually have a good day the next day. And then the following day and even day three, it tends to really peak and they feel the nausea or vomiting and fatigue along with it. And how long does it last? Usually lasts somewhere around three days. But every patient is different, and we certainly have patients that it lasts for weeks. What other side effects do you see? Fatigue, and fatigue not even related to anemia. So sometimes we say, oh, well, if your red blood count is low, maybe you're feeling fatigued. But patients can have a normal red blood count and just feel overwhelming fatigue, very tired, don't feel like getting out of bed or really doing anything. And again, what's the time? Does this occur continuously while they're getting chemo or it kind of goes up and down? It often tends to peak around the same time of the nausea with the platinum drugs. And again, it depends what drug they're using with it. So we find this to be probably more profound with using docetaxel and a platinum together versus some of the other drugs. But it tends to be right after chemo, maybe delayed a day, but usually resolving within that first seven days. What other side effects? So neuropathy, which would be characterized as numbness and tingling, usually in the extremities, the hands, the feet, maybe the legs. And also in that would be hearing problems associated with the cisplatin, so either hearing loss or ringing in the ears that we think of as a neurologic side effect. And how often do you see each one of those problems? 
I would say with the cisplatin, the hearing, since we only give four cycles of it, we usually don't see it too often. Sometimes people have transient ringing in the ears that doesn't last very long. It's usually all gone by the time they're done. In my patients, we use a dose of 75 milligrams per meter squared, so we don't tend to do pre-screening audiograms and then post. A lot of the head and neck cancer patients, we will do that, but in these patients, we don't necessarily do that. They get their four cycles, they're finished. If they're going on beyond that, it does tend to become a problem. What about the neuropathy? How often do you see that? The numbness and tingling, I do see more often, and with the cisplatin, it tends to be delayed. If they're getting docetaxel with it, sometimes they can have it while they're actually getting the treatment. I have seen mostly with the cisplatin, patients come back a month later and they have the numbness and tingling in their hands and feet. Now, once the four treatments are done or the four cycles, does the neuropathy usually go away? It usually does subside, but not in every patient. And I do tell patients that this can be a long-term side effect sometimes. What about nail changes? Do you see that? Nail changes, yes. So as part of the docetaxel... They can have nail changes as far as darkening under the nails or actually the nail coming off or nail growth over top of the current nail that they have on their body. They can also have tearing with the docetaxel. And actually, the cisplatin can cause that too. And it's just, you're not crying, but you have fibrosis in the tear ducts, which causes you to not allow the tears to stay in your eyes. They actually just drip out. So it looks like you're crying even though you're not. Not too often because we're only giving four treatments, but can happen. So does that also tend to go away once the treatment stops? It does. It almost always goes away when the treatment stops. Now, once the chemotherapy stopped, how long does it take for patients to go back to feeling the way they were before they started, or do they get back there? They usually do. It's very rare that a patient never really fully regains, sometimes if there's a surgical complication on top of it. Because a lot of the things that I find down the road, patients say, I just can't breathe as well as I did before the surgery. And I don't know that chemotherapy adds to that, but they usually do. It does take, though, I tell patients, a good two to three months before they're going to feel really back to normal again. What about the option of participating in a clinical trial? What kinds of trials are out there right now that patients who are going to get adjuvant therapy might be able to go into? For our non-small cell lung cancer patients who've had surgery, we have a clinical trial now that looks at the chemotherapy drugs that we talked about and adding a drug called Avastin or Bevacizumab. And it's a randomized trial, so half of the patients get just the chemotherapy. They get randomized to just that arm, and the other half of the patients get randomized to receive the drug bevacizumab. Now, what do you mean by randomized? Meaning that their names are put into a computer. Actually, their number. They get assigned a number, and it gets put into a computer, and the computer naturally will randomize them. Half of the patients will go and not get the bevacizumab, and the other half will. And we do that so that we can determine that the treatment that we're giving the study drug that it's not just a chance that it's better, that we have a control arm to know that the treatment arm did do better. Now, can you talk a little bit about what you say to patients in terms of why this study is being done, why bevacizumab or Vastin is being studied in this way? It has shown a survival advantage in patients who have stage 4 disease, so disease that we can see and follow. And because of the fact that it's improved, actually, survival and the time that it takes for them to progress, we think that possibly it could help improve cure rates in the adjuvant setting. And I can't say I necessarily would know why that would be, if it's some form of way of delivering the chemotherapy better, or it's a drug that restricts blood flow to tumors. 
even though there's not hopefully a tumor there. But we're hoping that that will increase cure rates as it's improved survival rates in our stage four patients. Now, in terms of a patient, let's say you see a patient who you think could possibly go into this study, what would you say to them in terms of sort of the benefits of them actually participating? I tell them that I can't tell them if there's a benefit because I don't know the answer to that. I tell them that we have a hunch or we think that hopefully there will be a benefit because it has shown a benefit in lung cancer before. But I tell them that I don't know the answer to that, but that the only way that we're able to advance any treatment in lung cancer is by patients participating on clinical trials and trying to you know, enroll patients and find better treatments. I guess patients who go in this particular trial will get standard treatment. So half of them get just standard treatment, which there's nothing wrong with. That's what they would get anyhow. And the other half get this experimental approach where they receive the standard treatment plus the bevacizumab. And I guess there is the hope and the possibility that those patients actually might do better. I guess they could do worse too. You know, you mentioned that the chemotherapy is usually given for four courses, How about the bevacizumab? So if you are in that 50% of patients that get randomized to the bevacizumab arm, you will be required to come back once every three weeks to just receive that drug. And if you're randomized to the bevacizumab arm, that will go on every three weeks for a year. Now, once the chemotherapy stopped and they're on this bevacizumab regimen without the chemo, how do patients usually feel? Usually they feel better. The bevacizumab is a targeted treatment. It does not have many of the side effects that I talked about earlier with the chemotherapy. It does not lower blood counts. Is not usually causing a lot of fatigue. I mean, it's actually the antibody. Correct, yeah. So usually people feel pretty good when they're on it. There are some specific side effects to bevacizumab. Maybe you can go through those, because I guess the one point, though, being that in general, I think patients, as you say, they feel fine. They're basically recovering from the chemo. But then there are potential specific complications where they may not feel bad, but they may have something developed that might require management. I guess the most common or certainly one common issue would be their blood pressure going up. Correct, yes. High blood pressure is one side effect of the bevacizumab, especially the longer that you're on it. And if we're giving it to someone every three weeks for a year, that certainly can become a complication and has in the past become a complication. Though, honestly, it's usually easily treated with antihypertensives, and we don't normally have a problem where we have to hold drug for that. What else is seen? I guess one is the possibility of protein coming out in the urine from the kidney. Right, and we do check for that. It's not a common side effect, I will say, but it does happen at times. The treatment is to hold the drug, and it almost always normalizes, and then you're able to retreat the patient. What about nosebleeds? Nosebleeds can happen while on bevacizumab. It's usually where you blow your nose and there's some blood in the tissue. It's not common that you are just sitting watching television and all of a sudden the blood starts gushing out of your nose. If that is happening, that requires some concern, and we would want to look into that further. But that is not technically a common thing, and we wouldn't stop treatment for a patient who's having blowing a nose and having some blood in it. We really wouldn't stop for that. We would probably want to hold it if there was concern for nosebleeds that wouldn't stop. I guess another thing would be what the patient's rights are, and they get a whole print, so-called informed consent, that I know is a lot of times kind of difficult to understand. It has a lot of different things in them. How do you advise patients in terms of kind of going through that? So for this trial in particular, the consent form is quite long. I want to say it's probably 20 pages. 
So we try to take patients through it as best we can. Much of it is side effects, which we go through anyway when we talk about it. We just try to navigate through it as best we can, but we don't sit there and read word for word all 20 pages with them. I guess another thing about being in the trial is the possibility, I guess, of contributing to the field and the care of future patients. As you talk to people thinking this through, how much of an issue is that? It's definitely something that I bring up, but I don't want to also pressure them into something they don't want to do either. So I do say that's the only way that we really advance our treatment in lung cancer is by doing clinical trials with patients. You know, and with this trial, like you said, you're going to get the standard of care either way. So you're not not getting some kind of treatment, but it is giving back to people. And I think that does give some kind of patient satisfaction by hearing that you're giving back to the disease. What other adjuvant trials are out there? We have an adjuvant trial, two others that I can think of off the top of my head. One of them is looking at patients who have an EGFR mutation. So that would be a mutation in your cancer tumor that would bode well for you to respond to a certain drug. Now, again, we know that from the metastatic setting, patients who have stage 4 disease that we can see and follow. And if patients have this mutation, they often respond to a drug called erlotinib, which is a drug that's approved for stage 4 disease. So taking that into the adjuvant setting, if you have a patient who had disease completely resected and it's gone, and they have this EGFR mutation, then they may respond to this drug erlotinib, and they not respond, but possibly improve their cure rate. And I guess the mutation is determined by actually studying the tumor. Right, taking the tumor and actually extracting the DNA and looking for mutations in the DNA. About what fraction of patients have this mutation, and do you tend to see it in one type of patient more than the other? Yes, it's most common in patients who've never smoked. And it's probably only about 50% in that population. In the total population, it's usually less than 10%. So it's not something that we see often. We do often test for it in our patients. And it's only in adenocarcinoma patients. So when you have a patient who's been resected, there's different cell types you can have. If you have adenocarcinoma, that would be the type that we would test for this. And if you're a non-smoker, you have an even more likelihood of having this mutation. So now in this study, if they do have the mutation, then they receive the drug, the erlotinib. Correct. And the idea is to sort of see how people do. Correct. So now if the patient has a stage where they are supposed to get chemotherapy first, because we know that's standard, they can get the chemotherapy first. And then they would go on to erlotinib if they have this mutation. And I believe it's two years. How do you find people in general responding to participating in a clinical trial? We have a hard time. We have a much harder time in the adjuvant setting than we do in a metastatic setting. We often can get patients to go on clinical trials. In the adjuvant setting, it's been really difficult. I guess even though we never know whether a new approach is going to help, there's the hope that it will. The likelihood, I think, that it probably won't hurt, although sometimes that happens. So it seems like if the traditional treatment, the standard treatment, isn't 100% curable, it would have some appeal just on the possibility maybe they could do a little bit better. Yeah, I would tend to think that also, but I find that patients who are eligible for these trials, I would say less than 50% of them will go onto the trial. I guess one thing that's important to clarify is the fact that it is totally up to them. Right. And I guess also if they decide to go on the study and then at some point decide they want to stop, that really isn't a problem. Right. We tell them at any time they can go off of the trial if they're uncomfortable with it or if there's a problem with it. So they do know that going into it. Right. What about follow-up 
after adjuvant therapy is completed? What happens over the next few years, and what do you observe? So we normally will do CAT scans of the chest in follow-up, and we will bring the patient back, depending on what their stage and their risk for recurrence is, somewhere between every three to six months to look at a scan. I know that it's very, very nerve-wracking to patients to be waiting for their scan result. It's very nerve-wracking. Some patients, we try to do it the same day, so they don't have to wait overnight to find out what their results are. The problem with doing CAT scans is that it often finds things that are small and not able to biopsy and are oftentimes not cancer, but then cause a lot of concern. It frightens the patient, and then they have to worry about it until their next scan, which isn't for another three months. So that is the con side of getting a CAT scan. How do you respond if a patient says, well, instead of taking the adjuvant therapy, why don't we just wait and see if the cancer comes back and then use treatment? I do hear that from time to time, and I right away tell them that usually once it's come back, it's not curable. So at the time that you've had your disease removed and we're offering you adjuvant chemotherapy, there's a window of opportunity there where we can hopefully catch any disease that we don't see and try and improve your cure rate. Once we have disease that's come back that we can see on scans, it's often not curable. How do you deal with the issue of the patient who is smoking at the time of diagnosis? Many times if they've had surgery and they're still smoking after surgery, that's a problem just because it can increase their recurrence rate, interfere with their healing from surgery. So most times after patients have had surgery for it, they've quit smoking. For stage 4 patients, sometimes they are continuing to smoke. It's very, very difficult for them to stop, especially during an extremely stressful time. You and I probably would think that that would be a teachable moment for them and they would quit smoking at the time of diagnosis, but it doesn't always happen that way. What are some of the adjuncts to assist patients who want to quit or having difficulty? Yeah, we definitely offer smoking cessation therapies. From a medication standpoint, there is a drug called uh, Chantix or Varencycline, I believe is the generic name. It's a fairly new drug, and it seems to be in the clinical trials to be better than the standard antidepressants or patches or nicotine gun that we used in the past. So we do offer that to patients as a first-line treatment to try and quit smoking. The idea is that you build up on the dose and you decrease your cigarettes until you get to that dose where you're supposed to have stopped. And I do find that it's been effective for a good number of patients. If they have a problem with that, we try other things like, well, butrin is a drug that's been used in the past. It's an antidepressant or nicotine gum patches, those kinds of replacement therapies. How do you find people coping with the diagnosis of lung cancer and also coping after the adjuvant therapy is over with the potential of it coming back? Patients cope very differently. Some patients feel like once they stop the adjuvant therapy, well, what do I do now? I'm left and I'm not doing anything. So for those patients, you just have to tell them that at this point we're going to rescan you, and if something comes back, hopefully we can find it sooner rather than later. There are support groups available to them if that helps them deal with it, but there is a lot of anxiety over the CAT scans and their reports. Then there's the other side of patients who didn't want adjuvant therapy to begin with for whatever reason, and they feel like it was gotten, they got it all. And a lot of times they come back for their scans, but they maybe are in some kind of denial or thinking, you know, this won't come back, and I'm just going to think about it that way, that this won't come back. They tend to have less anxiety that they show in our office anyway over the reports. 
What are the things that you've observed? I mean, everybody's different, but some of the different kinds of things that you find help people cope with anxieties and stresses about this? You know, oftentimes we will refer them to our counselors or our psychiatrist or a support group. We have not been successful at having our own support group just at our university setting. Patients haven't come to it, basically. But places like the Wellness Community or the American Cancer Society or online. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our faculty and patients, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for this special patient education program on adjuvant systemic therapy of lung cancer. 